0: Welcome to Conversations About Life.
1: Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Well, um, I'll just kind of introduce you a little bit, and then you can fill that in if you'd like to. Okay. But I know you from a previous church we were a part of, and I, I know your parents, and how are your parents doing, by the way?
0: They're doing great. Yeah, they're they're retired, more or less. I don't think my dad will ever start working completely. He yeah. works around the house now, mainly. Yeah, yeah, they're doing
1: good. Okay. Thanks. And you're involved in computational linguistics, mm-hmm. right? And That's you're right. Getting ready to go down to the University of Florida mm-hmm. and teach? Yep. Okay. So, I guess maybe just to start off, um, I'm... We'd like to ask you about just your upbringing and, okay. and that type of thing. Sure. Um, so, anyway, what was your upbringing like?
0: Um, well, I think it was a little unconventional in some ways. So, uh, I was born here in Missouri, in the St. Louis area, and then I lived in Iowa till the age of eight. Um, as the youngest of five kids, my dad was, a, as you know, a, a minister at a Baptist church, and... I think it was fairly normal until we moved back to Missouri in the middle of my second grade year, and then my parents decided to homeschool me, which was, this was uh, 1990, so this was a new thing, um, so yeah. it, was a, it was an interesting time, but I really enjoyed it. I think it was really good for me. So I did one more year in public school, and then I was homeschooled, and then uh, shortly before I turned 16, my parents became missionaries, and we moved from St. Louis, Missouri area to Moscow, Russia and they were house parents for a year in a children's home. And then uh, they worked uh, teaching English and teaching Bible. And so I lived there in Moscow, Russia until I was about 18, came back to the States uh, for about a year and a half, uh, finished college, and actually decided to go back to Russia uh, after college, and lived there. Until I was most of my 20s, actually. So that's a little bit beyond my upbringing, but that, yeah, that got me. um, So moving overseas was a big change. It was a significant thing as a young person.
1: So you went with your family, and then, and how many years were you there with your family?
0: Um, So I was there total. I was, it was about 11 years. I moved back and forth. I think I was a total of there of about 10 years total, over 11 or 12 years. Okay. Um, Most of the time I was living. With my, with my family, um, working for, often for the same organization that they were working for, or working for my parents because I learned the language and was interpreting for their work.
1: So, so when you went back on your own, it was to be with the same organization and work with them?
0: mm mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we worked together for many years, and then I also... Um, worked with other organizations. I traveled a lot. I spent a couple summers in Siberia, um, working for another uh, nonprofit organization as an interpreter. Uh, Did a lot of different random things. Lived in Germany for a while, lived in Ukraine for a very short while. Um, Did a lot of traveling around Europe. Was
1: Uh, that mainly for interpreter work?
0: Interpreting? um, Yes. And then some of it was with like working with Russian churches. um, So we would do camps or activities in orphanages so uh so it wasn't interpreting but it was a a lot of the same kind of work in that case yeah just working with russians yeah
1: so so i guess you you did well with picking up the russian language in order to be an interpreter huh uh
0: i did i did well um I, i put a lot of hard work into it but everybody said you're doing so well which was encouraging and I really enjoyed it. That was um, one of the first things that I found that I put in a lot of hard work on as a teenager, um, and really enjoyed it. I remember being surprised that I was giving up my afternoons ice skating sometimes in order to finish my Russian lesson. That's so. That was my first foray, I think, into languages um, seriously, and I and I really enjoyed it. And it paid it paid off. So I learned to speak it quite well. Yes.
1: Yeah. And and then how. Um Like, how long does it take to um, get, you know, with a Russian, I mean, a language like Russian, to get to where you're fluent and can talk?
0: That's a good question, yeah. Um, It depends a lot on how much time that you're, how much immersion you have, how much time you have. So, I think I looked at a flyer one time for the Air Force, and they have language, they have a language school, and they had a list of how many weeks it would take you to learn all these languages, and I think... Um, or months maybe uh, Spanish was the quickest one I think it took a little under a year a little over a year and Russian and I think Arabic were the hardest ones. so it also had Chinese and like French and a few others and they were I think over somewhere around two years and that's very intense so their training is very intense so if you spend all day every day Wow. learning Russian, then you can learn it uh, fluently in, in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and um, and then what? what's the enjoyment of it for you? Is it like opening doors for you or is it just the language itself? That, or?
0: I think for me it's two things. So Russians have a pretty complicated language, especially for one that's so... It's actually related to English, so it's up there with languages that are very different from English, like Chinese and Arabic in difficulty. Um, because it's very complicated grammar, um, you have to... Um, you can really put words anywhere in the sentence, um, which you can't do in English. So in English, if you say, Mary loves John, that has a different meaning than John loves Mary. Hmm. But in Russian, you can change those words all over the place, any, any um, order because the information about who is doing what to whom is carried on the words Hmm. so the words themselves change depending on what role they have in the sentence um and so you have to learn all the different changes of the words um so every noun can change i think up to um let's see six times i guess 12 times 12 different forms wow if i remember correctly um so you have to learn that, and there's v- different ways it can change depending on the other things in the word, like its sound or it's what, it, what letter it ends in. So, And then that has to fit together with the verb, and that has to change. The adjectives have to match, um, and then depending on what preposition you use, it will change a different way in the meaning of the preposition. So it might be the same pre- preposition, but if you're saying in as in it's located in versus going in, the store—that's a different change um, to communicate the difference in, in movement or location, and so all of that together is like figuring out how it works is like a big puzzle. And so I think the puzzle part, because I, I like crossword puzzles and mm-hmm. um, the Sudoku puzzles, so the, the puzzle part of it is really exciting to me. It's really interesting. It's—it's um, it's like you know sitting down and doing crossword puzzles, so almost like for fun. But the other part about learning a language that was more motivating for me, and especially living in the country, because I learned other languages in classes and I just didn't do as well, is because I didn't have the people to talk with. So it opens up a new worlds. I think um, uh, Emperor, I think it was Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, has this quote where he says, for every language you learn, you become that much more of a person because you've opened up a new world uh, and new people to talk to. So that part is also very rewarding. Okay, wow. Yeah.
1: So So, so you know other languages then besides Russia?
0: I've studied other languages. I learned to speak some German when I lived in Germany. Um, I've studied a lot of languages that I don't speak. Okay. Um, and then as a linguist, I study languages and how they're built. So is there's some languages that I know I could, if you were lear- learning it, I could tell you what, what, like where the verb should go, um, where the noun should go, where the subject should go, where the adjective should go maybe, but I couldn't speak it. Like, I don't know right. any words. I just know the structure. Yeah.
1: So do different languages have like a certain beauty to them that's kind of unique for them or, um, is it? All just kind of basic communication, just in different ways, and um, or do some languages um, have a lot more um, ability to communicate in, in ways other lang- language might not, and so forth. Or?
0: I think so. I think every language um, can you can say some things in a language that you can't say in another language. <clears throat> so there's so many things that we can communicate say as humans about this world and so many thoughts we can have um and one language has a narrow way of saying it and another language has a very varied way of saying it um and so one of my favorite examples is russian has two words for truth um, that we would translate into english as truth right but it and that sounds seems impossible but if you explain it, then any human can understand the difference. So there's one word that means like absolute truth, something that's absolutely true. Um, it's a deep truth. And then there's another word, Pravda, which was the name of the um, communist newspaper. And it actually still exists as a newspaper. And that is more like what's right or what's even my opinion. So it's true for me. Hmm. Um, so it's not a deeper truth. So those things, anybody can understand that as a human. But the Russian language has a word that, it, that expresses the difference.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. And in English, you know, you just have to kind of understand from the context. And people even talk about, like, my truth. And I guess they're <laughs> kind of talking about, like, what's true for them or their right. opinion almost.
0: Right. But, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um,
1: I think sometimes maybe, like, being in a different culture um, and learning a different language and so forth it kind of helps you to see your own in a way you wouldn't um, if you if all you knew was yourself Mm -hmm. so what has your experience kind of um, revealed to you about uh, americans anything Uh, in particular
0: that's that's interesting question a lot of things um yeah and i like what you said so in russian there's actually a, a saying it's which means it's more visible if you're on the sidelines. You can see better if you're standing on the side sometimes and looking. And so I think going to another culture kind of puts you on the sidelines of your own culture and you can look at it um, and maybe more objectively um, if that's possible. Um, There's uh, One of the things I struggled with coming back to the States was um, feeling lonely, feeling, um, unwanted and, um, not taking care of because Russia is, Russian culture is more communal. And so if you're with somebody or you're, you know, meet some friends, I think especially probably as a teenager, as a young, as a college student, um, you have a group of friends, you belong and they, um, so just silly, even silly things like, um, we would go to a Bible study, and it would be at a location, so we'd all be, you'd be on the bus, and you'd see someone else who was going to the Bible study, and you'd chat, and you'd get off, and then you'd see, get off, and there'd be somebody else standing there. Um, And we're all late for the Bible study, but we see someone who's also heading there, and she's like, well, I'm I'm waiting for someone. And in, in America, if you were late, or even if you weren't late, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, we'll see you there. But in Russia, there was like this understanding that you wouldn't leave. Um, you would wait there with your group, unless maybe you were very late. And like, somebody was leave because the leader had already fussed at it a few times about being so late and not coming on time. And so one time we were like, oh, we better go on. And, you know, sorry, we have to leave. And we had to we felt like we had to apologize. Um, so we always stayed together in groups. And that makes you feel, I didn't realize it until I came to the US. And then I'm like, with a group of people, and I'm like, well, I have to go to the bathroom, which this is so silly. And not only would nobody go with me uh, just to keep me company, um, but then I would come out and they might have all gone away and broken up uh, the group and gone to classes or whatever, and nobody, you know made sure to let me know, which is now I'm used to it. Now it's kind of nice because that's free. and like, okay, hey, you can come and go as I like, and everybody's kind of on their own and that's an understanding. So now I, I've gotten used to it and, I'm, and I like that because um, there's a lot more freedom, I guess, in that. but there's also, Yeah, when you're used to it, it it felt very. It felt like nobody cared. (laughs) Just, you know, so it's 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 hard. I don't like to say these things to put like um. It almost sounds like a moral judgment on the culture, Um, and that's I don't think it is. I think um, it's just something that's different, and you just have to recognize that and learn to adjust, learn the rules of the of the culture. Um, Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: So. They're more communal. Are they more relationship? focused, do you think? Or do you think there's they have deeper relationships and that's more important to, to them?
0: Definitely more relational. And I think it is easier to get into a conversation that's deeper, um, like you talk politics or talk religion or, or values very quickly with someone you don't know. And that's a nice thing. Um, and that's a good thing. And that also is something I had to adjust to in America to kind of back away a little bit. Hmm. And that seems like, again, there's always, I think there's a trade-off. So that seems like a, a very good thing. The trade-off is um, everything runs on who you know instead of what you know. So everything runs on relationships. So even your power dimensions are going to run on relationships. So that's the flip side of that. Um, hmm. So if you don't know the right people in the court system or the government or the bureaucracy, you're kind of sc- too bad, you know, kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, it's more—it it seems more standoffish a lot of times, and you have to get to know a person really well, and even then, you might not feel comfortable talking about more controversial topics, the politics or religion. But that kind of standoffishness also means that um, it's not about who you know, but it's about what you know most of the time. Of course, that's not impossible to do 100% with humans, um, but it is much more so that you can walk into like a government office or be in court and know that they're not gonna look at who you are as much. Um so it's a trade off. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are any um is there any other ways that um people of Russia are different?
0: <laughs> so many ways. Uh so many ways. Uh it's very different. Um I think the communal versus individualism is very different. I think the um yeah, running on relationships, you know, So, which is great when I think about relationships. I have a lot of friends, but then working the government's hard, but then my friends in Russia, they come and they feel like nobody likes them, but on the other hand, and at the same time, they feel like, um, some of them feel like, some of them like the system that's efficient, um, but other people are like, they don't pay attention to who I am as a person. I'm like, yeah, that means you can't bribe them either. (laughs) Um, uh, The other thing is they're more, a little bit more, about saving face so a little bit more eastern i guess
1: yeah my son's talked to my billy he's he lives down at the border of um mexico texas and um at a campus that has like a lot of um different nationalities represented Mm. there Mm. and um he's talked about the way different cultures are like we are and i I forget exactly how he put it but like some uh, cultures are more honor-shame cultures, mm-hmm. and it sounds like that's kind of more relational, where it's really important to fit in, whereas the others might be... I don't know what the opposite of that would be. Maybe truth or uh, justice?
0: Yeah, uh, f- I've... focused but... I'm trying... It's, a, it's and it's a guilt. Oh, yeah. Guilt I think that's something. it. Guilt, something guilt, innocent. Right. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So I'm it sounds
1: like a, there's... It's more of that honor-shame type of...
0: Yeah, they're, they're, the fresh is always an interesting place because it's kind of in between the Western, which tends to be more the guilt. Is it guilt in, in innocence, uh, And then Eastern cultures are more honor-shame. So it kind of rides somewhere in the middle. So, yeah. So you have to yeah. m- make sure things look good.
1: And the way we, um, when we're um, talking about the gospel, our mm-hmm. emphasis is a lot on the guilt yeah, and stuff. Whereas, um, that, you know, what in that type of society, I don't know, maybe it's, um, would the emphasis maybe, uh, should include like, um, the acceptance into the kingdom and God's family and mm-hmm. stuff that might relate more to the honor shame. I don't know, but, or, yeah. or, or yeah, I'm not sure, but
0: yeah, I don't, I've read some of, there's a really interesting website that talks a lot about the honor shame and the gospel I think it's called honorshame.com hmm. uh, and so that's helped me understand a lot uh, some of the things you're talking about yeah um, how actually the Bible was written in a more honor shame culture like a lot of it especially the Old Testament uh, than than the guilt and innocence and so if you understand that I think I I think I think they said there's a lot more written about how God covers our shame than forgives hmm. our sins there's both um, mm-hmm yeah so so yeah like in a in a culture where it's communal and on our shame to be not accepted into your into a community or into a group into a collective um to use a good russian word uh or communist word i guess (laughs) is is horrible like i said like coming back to america and not finding that i was fitting into some sort of collective um was, was a horrible feeling. I felt, I felt unloved, unneeded, unwanted. Um, you know, I just had to learn it operated differently, but it's a horrible feeling. Um, and you'll do a lot to, to get rid of that feeling. Um, and I think that is a little bit more of what it means to be shamed in those cultures. So from what I've read
1: to be not included mm -hmm.
0: to be, Hmm. yeah, to be disgraced, isn't so much about being embarrassed or humiliated ashamed, or, you know, ashamed can mean kind of feeling guilty, but there's a big element of, yeah, being not included.
1: And how would you know you're not included?
0: Um, in, in American culture or, or gospel or or just... Or
1: in, uh, like Russian Russian. culture. uh...
0: Um, well, it's almost impossible not to be included because it's such a part of the culture. Um, and if you are like criticized or something, it's more likely to happen. But that is one way, a lot of gossip. Okay. Um a lot of gossip going on. Um, I fortunately didn't experience it very much, but I know from what uh, people who did have that kind of suffering, um, that's one way you would know that they were not including you. Um, it was everybody. It wasn't just, it wasn't to your face. It would be behind your back. Um, yeah, I guess I don't, I, fortunately, I don't I can't think of any more <laughs> Because mm-hmm. uh, I haven't experienced it, unfortunately, know very many people.
1: Um, so, what's the attitudes of the people in Russia toward um, politics and society and things compared to us? Like, I know we're we re- lean really in, individualistic in that too, mm-hmm. like personal freedom and and so forth. So, I, I imagine it's different in Russia. Oh, very
0: it? different, and also personal responsibility. So, yeah, um, the sense that the government belongs to me and. Yeah. Also, um, the purpose, the idea of, this gets philosophical, um, the idea of what law is for. So in America, law, it's a rule of law. And, and some of that sense of guilt comes from the fact that the law kind of exists as an abstract thing that you've broken. And it's, it's a right, it's a good thing. Um, and you're going to be judged based on the law, not based on whether the judge likes you or not. Or thinks you're a good person um, In Russia um, I would say Law is more about What the people who are in power use To um, Yeah, to stay in power But also hopefully you know, To punish the bad But it's more about Law doesn't exist as an abstract thing As much as it's Something that belongs to a system of people um, Who have power hmm. And so, I think one of the things that leads to is greater willingness to break the law um, and to get away with what you can get away with um, mm-hmm. because you don't think of it as it's not a rule of law. It's it's again, who do I know? Um, Was my relationship with the person in authority? So, also, um, that, I think. The, maybe a bit, I don't know if this relates, but I think of it as the same in the school system. So uh, there's a lot more of what we would consider cheating, um, but actually it's something that you're even encouraged to do. So I, I attended one semester at Moscow State University and I got down to the finals, which are all oral, by the way. So you're giving one question from one topic during the semester. That's the typical way of doing it. And mm-hmm. then you have time to prepare and then give an oral presentation to your professor. And I was given question of the one day I wasn't there in class um, and hadn't studied, I hadn't made up for it, um, which was my bad. And I said to the teacher, I don't, this is, I don't know, I wasn't there, I don't know this topic. And she looked at me and she said, well, you have friends. And then she walked out of the room. <laughs> and so <laughs> the obvious expectation um, that I was supposed to ask my friends during the final for help um, and so that seems like cheating in American culture, and I think even technically it might have been against the rules. But that's not there's like what the abstract rules, and then there's the reality of what you live, um, and it, the reality of relationships or what you survive on is is what was more important, I guess. Yeah. 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 So that's less about politics. I would uh, generally also I, I think that Russians don't care as much about their government. They're just like, "Eh, whatever. There's, you know, the old saying, um, may the Lord bless and keep the Tsar very far from us. (laughs) It's kind of, kind of still holds, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, when it comes to Christianity, Mm -hmm. like in America, you know, most people, I guess, are familiar with Jesus. Maybe, you know, a lot of people even are familiar with the concept of jesus dying for our sins um and it might whether it means something to them or not you know it's kind of a common i think um, a knowledge among a lot of people is it like that um in russia or is it uh, quite a bit more unfamiliar with them
0: that's an interesting question and it's i think it's hard to judge because on one hand you have this history of communism where it was an atheistic government. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was, what, 30 years ago now? Uh, So older people, especially, may have never heard Hmm. uh, or know the basic story of Christianity. Um, On the other hand, the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, has always been a powerful influence, and even less, definitely less so during the communist period, but culturally it's always had a, a... strong influence on people it's always been a a strong part of the culture and it's so it's come back since the communist time and so people are very aware of that and it's the churches are all over um at least in the areas i was which was mostly european russia but whether that means that people again actually know the basic doctrine and history and and the story of christ and, and creation and who Jesus is and all of that, it's, it's hard to judge because it, it's um, a lot of his formality um, or like a cultural, like I'm Russian, therefore I'm Orthodox, but I may never have gone to church or actually know about what it teaches. Okay. Yeah. I would think overall, definitely less than in America because American Christianity has been very long, very well known for a long time, much longer time. We didn't have, you know, a period of where it was, it was legal like they did. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: So with the Orthodox Church, is there like um, vi- a vibrant group of Christians involved with it? Like, is it, um, or is it just like, almost like museums and so forth?
0: My experience is that it's mostly like museums. Most of the people I know, um, they walk in and they light the candles and they listen to, I guess it would be called a mass, which is in Old Slavonic, which is an older version of Russia, kind of like Latin would be to not to English because we're we're not a, we're not that closely related to Latin, but maybe a French person listening to Latin um, or Italian person listening to Latin, it's it's um, it's it's not something they're going to understand. Except maybe a word or two here, and then they bow to the icons and they walk out. And some of that is done in a superstitious way to, you know, well make God happy, but I also know people who, who do that, but are also very sincere in what they do understand, they hold to tightly. One of the things I do like about the Orthodox Church is um, they emphasize, uh, and you can go into any church and you can buy a ring, I think it's a fairly common pe- thing for people to have, where it has on it inscribed the prayer that the the, um, I forget who it was, but Jesus told the story about uh, a Pharisee, a very good person, religious person, and then I think a tax collector, not not very ethical or moral person who walked into, they both walked into the temple and the Pharisee, the, the righteous person's like, oh, thank you for making me such a good person and not making me like this bad person over there. And the bad person, he just stood there and beat his chest, which was a sign of mourning in that culture and said, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And so that prayer, forgive me, I'm a sinner, Hmm. um, is something that uh, I think a lot of Orthodox people, if they know much about the religion, they know that. And so, you know, I've met someone who didn't seem to know very much about Christianity, but she knew enough and she owned that ring and she said, you know, I, I pray that every day. And, you know, I believe that God listened to the sincerity of her heart. Um, based on what I've read in the Bible, um, it's—I think—it's unfortunate that the education for her and maybe the services weren't in a language she could understand. You know, that's a, that's a big thing for me as a linguist. You should use languages that you can understand. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so so the, it's it, it's it, it's hard to say. I, I've not met a group of Gorthax Christians who are like very involved, but I have met people who seem to know what they believed to the extent that they understood it and were very sincere in it so and i and i've heard of um i've heard of like a orthodox priest who actually was um working on translating the bible into one of the indigenous languages in russia oh wow so, so there's there's a there's a range I see. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah um i hear about people um over here you know converting mm-hmm. to eastern orthodoxy like um you, know, you yeah. Hank Hanegraaff and his conversion yeah
0: I've you? heard of him yes I don't know if I heard about the conversion yeah interesting yeah yeah I, and I've heard of yeah I've heard like read articles about people converting um, I've heard of friends that, through friends friends I used to know and, and friends who who still in contact with them told me that they've converted to Eastern Orthodoxy um, yeah I think I I don't know if you've heard like what the attraction is um, I know in general, there seems to be an interest in the traditions and the fact that, especially if you come from a Protestant, and I think particularly, you know, like Baptist background, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on uh, the church history and the traditions and using mm-hmm. those in your worship.
1: I think so. I think um, maybe the attraction is that it is, does seem to be more rooted in history, mm-hmm. whereas like a lot of modern evangelical churches, they just seem like, um, uh, something just sprung up, you know, all of a sudden and you don't sense that, you know, tradition, Christian tr- right. history tradition, maybe, um, maybe that I'm not, uh, sure what else. Um, but, um, I think I don't, so I don't know much about Eastern Orthodox, religion, um, it seems like, um, they have maybe like, well, they have an emphasis on the apostolic fathers, the church Mm -hmm. fathers, er, you know, early writings. And then, um, it seems like they, um, there's an emphasis on, um, maybe like, um, man be well there's this saying I've heard I guess I'm not sure where it comes from like God became man so that man could become God mm-hmm. not so that we could become God but because but we could become like what we were uh created to be filled with God's divine spirit and something mm-hmm. along those lines but um there's maybe an you know that emphasis on there but I'm not for sure um I think icons are kind of interesting. I don't know exactly how they're used, um, but they seem like really structured and used somehow in their devotional life. Like, we're so word-centered. And um, do you know much about um, their icons?
0: Um, Not a lot, um, other than what I've seen in the Orthodox Church where they go and they'll bow to it and they'll kiss it. Um, And I think... I think, like, in at least the Catholic Church, from what I know, they'll pray prayers to the saints, you know, mm-hmm. kind of with the idea that the saints are still alive, so they'll ask them to intercede to me, to yeah. me, to God. That's, I think, the idea. Um, I do not know that's how kind of the Orthodox Church came about, as an independent church, so they split from, well, the Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church, and the Orthodox right. became the Catholic Church because of the accounts, so that was the Great Schism, um, mm-hmm. so... I think the controversy was, well, are you actually worshiping those icons? You know, those are like idols, and in the, in the Orthodox Church were um, or like, no, it's it's a reminder, it's, it's a teaching uh, tool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think... Yeah, and I know that... And I think I've read this as well even today. Look, one of the things that's attractive about the Orthodox Church is their emphasis, like you said... Protestants are so word-centric, and Orthodox really emphasize uh, beauty. Like, with icons, they're, they're beautiful. Um, there's there's an art to them. It's a very mm-hmm. specific art. And um, the churches are built very symbolically in how they're built. Um, the like the altar part of it, I think, is always in the east. Um, mm. I think towards Jerusalem, I don't remember all the symbolism. The, the cross, which is not the normal one bar down, one bar across, it also has either a thing that looks like a crescent moon underneath or it has a side bar and so I do know, like the sidebar at the bottom of the cross um, isn't just where I thought it used to think it was where Jesus put his feet but it actually represents um, the two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus. Hmm. And the one who repented went up so it's a sidebar. One side points up to heaven and he believed in Jesus and repented so he went up to heaven and the other one didn't repent. Hmm. He didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God and he was condemned.
1: Oh, yeah. well I've seen that bar. Yeah. I didn't know um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: yeah, so there's a lot of symbolism. Um, and and in the history of Russia so it was a political thing um, as it often was in those days and sometimes still is in some countries especially uh, what religion to choose, especially what religion the king chose. Mm-hmm. And so the, it wasn't the Tsar then he was a, the prince of of Kiev, I think, uh, was deciding for some reason, he decided he was going to choose what religion, he felt like, um, so before it had been pantheism, worshipping multiple gods, and so he wanted to decide what was going to be the official religion of his country. And so he sent em- emissaries to the Muslims and to Rome and then to Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, to visit the Roman Catholic Church, to visit the um, Orthodox Church and the and the Muslim, I think that was the three that were the major religions in that area at the time. And uh, so, the emissaries that went to Orthodox came back and said, they just raved about how beautiful the worship is. They said, we walked into the churches and it was so beautiful. So the paintings and the icons and everything we said, we felt like we were already in heaven. So this hmm. aesthetic, uh, were this aesthetic emphasis, emphasis on the aesthetics in worship, mm-hmm. um, was what they talked about, and so he decided to become an Orthodox Christian, and then he made everybody else become an Orthodox Christian. So that's the story. Um, in reality, his mother was already uh, Orthodox Christian, and so he and, and also Constantinople was closer geographically, so there was probably some political um, reasons to become more mm-hmm. aligned to to the Constantinople um, that emperor empire at the time. But it's still, I think, true. I think it's still something that is very true. There's a, there's a higher emphasis on the aesthetic, like being able to worship God, not just with your words, mm-hmm. like, but also with pictures and just a sense of beauty, which I think is is, is really neat.
1: Yeah. Um, so there's an icon carver. He's got a podcast. His last He's French. His last name's Paggio or something like that. I don't remember for sure. Um, and he talks about... Uh, Like, he used to try to reason people into the faith, Mm -hmm. but now his approach is more of trying to show them the beauty of Mm -hmm. the Christian faith. And I think there's something to that, because um, in our kind of postmodern society, I think people might be um, kind of uh, suspect of reasoning, like, can you really know for sure, and can you really reason to something and have confidence Mm in that? So they... But like beauty can compel a person, um, and, you know, talking about the beauty, not necessarily of an icon, but like of the orderliness Mm -hmm. of, um, God's creation and how we fit in and then the redemption and how it all culminates, um, in a relationship with Mm -hmm. God in his kingdom. And so there's something, you know, beautiful about all of, all of that, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. The sacrifice and suffering and just all of that. So, anyway, um, that's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed, and this, yes, I think there's definitely something to be said about remembering that God created the whole world, including the feelings and the things you see, not just the word of God. Yeah, and that you yeah. you can find Him and learn to know Him through those things as well.
1: So. Um, well, as far as like um your upbringing, is there anything particular that you really appreciated or is there anything that you wish was different now in hindsight? Or do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um I mean I think we all do mm-hmm. um think both of those things, things that we love and things that we think we're different. Um I could go into so many things that I'm grateful for. I think the biggest thing, because I think this is the biggest thing at that time, um, I'm so grateful my parents chose to homeschool me. Hmm. Um, I think it was, in the biggest in the sense that that was a big decision for them to make because they didn't really know anybody else that was doing that at the time. And they just, um, I think maybe private school was too expensive or too far away. And the quality of the public school wasn't great. So they said, we can do better than this. My mom's a teacher. She has a teaching certificate. And she's like, I can do better than this. And for me, I think it really turned out to be better. Um, so obviously, you know, I have a Ph.D., I have some other graduate degrees. I really love school. I really love learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, her, she tells it, I was being held back. I was bored in school. Um, what I remember is going back, well, especially in fourth grade when I was a little bit older and you were getting a little bit more um, closer to your teenage years where you're worried about peer pressure and who likes you and who doesn't like you more than you are when you're innocent, you know, first or second grader. I think um, what I remember is a lot of pressure to fit in and a lot of confusion for me because I think like a lot of nerdy kids, my social uh, skills bloomed later in life. So I think being homeschooled really uh, helped me escape that pressure when it was hard for me. Not everybody's, you know, for some people it's easier when they're younger, it was harder for me. And just made me able to focus on learning and um, learning independently so I could go at my own pace. And um, I've also heard this and read this and heard this from people who've known homeschoolers or teachers that one of the things about homeschooling is it it seems to be an interesting byproduct of it for so many of homeschoolers is uh, an understanding and a a grasp of the intrinsic value of learning, just learning because it's fun, because it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've even seen that. So one of the graduate schools I went to... Well the, oh, I just went to it. It makes me sound like I went to a lot. I went to... The first one I went to to get my master's degree, they had a museum of cultures there. And so we would have a lot of people, young groups of schools come. And you could... And I would walk through the lobby sometimes on my way to class or and see these children in the lobby with all these displays are. And you could tell when it was homeschoolers. It was it was so weird. Um, and not just because there was a higher proportion of adults or a greater range of, of ages, but because... You know, i just walk in and I'd stop and be like, okay, something's different. What's different? Oh, these kids are actually interacting with the museum displays. Like, where you, can, you could, it was about um, languages and culture. So you could listen to, you could pick up a phone and you could listen to a language that could also be communicated by whistling. Yeah, so there's a couple languages like that. Uh, there's one in South America and they had recordings of them whistling long distance to communicate. So it was a tonal language or the pictures. And they're actually looking and interacting, whereas the other groups, um, of students were spending most of the time just interacting with each other hmm. yeah so um so anyhow i'm so grateful that for that yeah i think that really helped me survive my teenage years difficult teenage years yeah uh, easy yeah. well
1: what about you and your relationship with god like what's that like um so you obviously identify with the christian faith right mm-hmm. yes so um i guess um that's kind of a broad question, but... Um, so, I, I guess, like, what's important to you when mm-hmm. it comes to um, that, you know, like, the, you know, why is, you know, why and so forth? And.
0: There's so many, again, like I said, it's a broad topic. There's so many things to talk about. I think the thing that stands out to me as a person, as a scientist... Um, and someone who's been trained in the Western approach to knowledge, which is a division between faith and fact, as it were, or between what's empirical, what you can see and, and feel and, and hear, versus what you can know. So I think it's what I would say the difference between what's knowable, uh, if you're talking about imp- what's empirical, what you can know through your senses and what's, or excuse me, what's provable so we can go through logic and we can show the observations and what's knowable, so like love and justice. Um, and those things are divided in our culture, um, which is useful. I don't condemn it. It's very useful. It's uh, really helped us figure out a lot of things by separating those two, but it's an arbitrary separation. It's not something that most cultures have done. And in it become, become unhealthy, um particularly as a Christian it doesn't fit the Christian faith so one thing that stands out to me and what's important to me as a Christian is the fact that God is a a God of all the world and that the Christian faith is something that is a total faith you don't just believe it with words um it like you were like we were saying earlier um you it it touches your feelings it touches fact history um that Jesus Christ actually lived and that there's good historical evidence that he was actually res- raised from the dead um, those are facts the um, Christian and can't stand uh, unless you without that historical fact um, because it's not just about faith or just about feeling or just about believing um, there is the belief, there are the things the acceptance of the things that you can't prove um, but you have to believe um, and that comes in part through things that you can know but can't prove, like True love, um, right and wrong, and then there's the feeling part of it. You know, so the fact that God said the most important thing is to love God. So Jesus said this while He was on Earth: to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And then I think another version was adds heart, soul, strength, and spirit. So spiritual, feelings, mind so your intellect and your body so what you do and the fact that all of those things are integrated whole it's a total faith um, and shouldn't be separated and um, so as I work in a field that specifically tries to separate and has benefited from an arbitrary separation um, as much as we can separate is always remembering that you can't really separate it it's an arbitrary division that's not real, Um, all those things are integrated and God is the God of Everything and Christ died on the cross not just to send us to heaven but to redeem all of those things, including the natural world. Um, because there'll be a new heaven and a new earth when He comes back. Yeah.
1: And the thing, you know, and the science um, that's kind of separated from the, the rest, mm-hmm. um, it, it stands on the other because you have to um, have some confidence that logic works and so forth mm-hmm. like that. So.
0: I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a coincidence. Now, some of this is based on the separation goes all the way back. My understanding, all the way back to Plato, so to Greek philosophy. But I don't think, and then Saint Augustine was a great student of Plato, and he, he can you this idea of the difference between kind of the note, the world you can see and the world you can't see, and influenced the Catholic Church, which influenced um, Western culture. But I still, I don't think that it's a coincidence that. Um, science and the advances in science, a lot of them have come in the cultures that were Christian and Protestant Christian in particular, because they they kind of took that and um, did even more separation, so they wanted to separate government Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, state and and church. Right. Um, So it's
1: interesting how you use the word no, because um, sometimes because we're in like a scientific modernistic mm-hmm. age, we use the word know kind of as equivalent to information, like mm-hmm. something you can prove, but you were using it as the opposite of like what you can prove. So you, so knowing in the way you're using it, it's more like a different way of knowing than just facts and information, mm-hmm. but I guess more of um, experience. and And it's kind of hard to like for me just to nail down what is that kind of knowing and how can you know that you know you know <laughs> yeah, um, right um because it seems more elusive to define it but it's something we uh practice all the time mm-hmm. um and it's just part of being human but it's kind of hard to know just what is that right. you
0: know it, like i don't i don't think anybody would deny that there is such a thing as love like anybody in the world who you know has that concept? But can you prove it? Um, yeah. So, but, has, but how do you know that it does exist? How do you know that it is important? How do you know that you know the world does turn on love? Um, hmm.
1: That's and that's real cl- close to um, mor- objective morality because um, that's kind of like a concept that we believe is really true. Um, and yet, like, how, where does that stand, you know? Um, or beauty—that it's um, not just something that we're um, sensing right. because of accidentally being, you know, evolving this way. But there is something there's there's something true about beauty that this is beauty, that's ugly, and that's no matter if I recognize it or not, that's just the way it is. Right. You know?
0: And everybody knows, you know, right. that people. Right. Humans respond to beauty. And just because you live in a different culture, you're st- still going to think that, I think, trees are beautiful, for example. Trees and rivers and... Right. Yeah, it's universal.
1: So knowing is some way of, like, uh, hitting upon truth, figuring it out. It's just like, well, how is that process all working mm-hmm. out? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I, just...
0: know. <laughs> I think, for me, the biggest... Especially being someone who loves facts and books, the biggest um, revelation, uh, if maybe that's the right word, in my life was realizing that I can't know, or I can't prove, I guess would Mm -hmm. be the word to say, I can't prove. And I think it's important to remember that because if we can know or prove everything and absolutely know this is true, know that we know that, then that makes us God. Yeah, God's the only one who knows and can prove everything um, right. and so I was actually really strengthening to my faith in a kind of a counterintuitive way because it seems like the more I could be sure the more I could prove, the more I could know and the fact that Christianity was very much about the historicity the fact, that the historical fact of Jesus' life, death and resurrection um then the more that I could prove, the more the stronger my faith would be. But I think one of the things that made my faith very sh- strong and made me um, know, <laughs> feel that it was the Christianity was true was uh, was the fact that I couldn't prove everything.
1: I know what you mean. Okay,
0: well, it's hard to explain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I've thought about that before, that we're kind of boxed in just because we're creatures. Right. And so just by, by definition almost, you know, we're just boxed in and I kind of think of it like it's my cat, because um, like the my cat can't relate to like me and knowing what I know, but the cat knows everything it needs to know to be a cat. Mm. So we're kind of like, we know everything we need to be, yeah. to be good humans. But um,
0: I like that metaphor.
1: But yeah, but I see what you mean. There's some comfort in that, or something. Um, it relieves us from thinking we have to yeah. know everything, or something along those lines. But
0: and I think specifically it strengthened my resolve or decision that Christianity was the best religion. I'm going to say that because I've chosen it because of the emphasis of Christ on humility. Um, and on God caring about us. And so it works if you don't know everything, then it's it's great to worship a God who just says you don't need to know everything. And in fact, you're going to be better off and you're going to have a better life if you admit that you don't know anything, even if you admit that you don't know everything about me. And I think that was particularly kind of changed me my way of thinking and so much because... I'd grown up in church where I was taught that you need to know what you believe in you need to know right Mm -hmm. like you can prove it Um, and you need to be able to explain it to other people and realizing that honestly I think maybe the best way to explain or or communicate who God is and what it means to be a Christian is to admit that you don't know I don't. I can't prove that God exists. Um, I can't prove that God exists, but I can tell you how He describes Himself and what His characteristics are, and, I, and then I can tell you that I can look at the world and say my experience with life matches what He claims. But I can't prove it um, because mm-hmm. it's my experience. Um, and there's other things you can, you can talk about. His, you know, the historical facts of Jesus and everything. And you can look at uh, the evidence that it demands a verdict. I think. Mm -hmm. Josh McDowell, who's gone through all the historical proofs or evidence for the resurrection. But in the end, I can't prove it. So what am I left with just depending on God? And then I have to ask the question, not whether or not he actually exists, but if he exists, does my experience match who he describes himself to be in the Bible? this is all kind of abstract and I don't know if I'm making a good good job of explaining it but uh, I I guess what I'm saying is realizing that I don't have to and I can't prove everything makes me come back to the question who is God what is he like and that becomes the basic question instead of what do I know that I believe Um, right mm -hmm. and so it's all focused on God and then I look at a God who's loving and kind and that's how he describes himself and forgives doesn't excuse people won't let people he's not a pushover But he's very kind and loving, and he cares about us. And yeah, and then that is that. My experience in my life, yes, that's my experience in my life. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Are you familiar with Esther Meek? No, I'm not. Okay, I wrote. I mean, I read a book that she wrote, but she talks about, like, what the book is called, "Longing to Know," Mm -hmm. and it's about knowing. And um, one illustration she gives that um, I kind of like is. Like you've, you kind of can know that you're, um, hitting upon truth when it opens up new possibilities. Um, because you really, um, it's kind of like feeling in the dark a little bit Mm. sometimes, but, um, and she gives the illustration of like riding a bike, like before you know how to ride a bike. So this is more like bodily knowledge, I guess. Um, you don't, um, know what your body has to feel like as far as balance and the pedals and everything in order for you to propel forward but you try and you try and then you you know you're you're hitting upon it when you start propelling forward you know when it takes so that kind of um, has been thought provoking to me to just think that um, that's kinda of what uh, truth is like if, if it's really truth then it's going to propel you forward um, rather than just be a dead end yeah know.
0: that i like that i, I think I, I guess i would i think about how that applies in my life is like part of the reason of my christianity is that when i really explore it and dig down deep in it i don't have to force it to fit into the world around me it it propels me forward yeah it right. opens up oh yeah okay and then if, if this is true then oh wow what an amazing world i live in then um like Bible talks about the freedom in Christ you know it's, it's um not about the rules or the rituals it's about wow God is loving and kind and wow look he created this beautiful world with these trees so oh wow and he loves me so and these he loved me enough to just let me enjoy beauty so maybe I could spend my whole life just studying the natural world languages in my case and finding the beauty in it and that's that's wow that's opens up yeah yeah An exciting life <laughs> That?
1: Hmm. Um, so, um, in your life, what seems like if you just think back on a typical week, what seems significant to you when you just think like the like my my uh, I have a journal now or a planner now that leads me through like a weekly type of planning the week coming up and it also says, well, go back in your past week and list your five wins or whatever you know so that's been kind of interesting because a lot of times i just go on you know i wouldn't even think about that it's just kind of nice to think about wow this happened last week this happened last week this seems kind of cool so um for you what when you think back on a typical week what kind of pops out as far as significance that seems important in your life
0: that's that's an interesting question I'm usually so focused on what I'm going to get done that week. I've never, I don't know if I've actually consciously thought about thinking about the previous week. Um, And it's hard for me to think right now because I'm in a transition period. Um, I I think probably one of two things, it'd probably be either I, I learned something new or accomplished something, which as a scientist it's usually learning something new or coming to a new conclusion based on something I read, or I've met somebody interesting. Yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. Knew. or learned something interesting about someone um, that I already knew. Right. Yeah. So, like right now, this is going to be probably something that stands out to me next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Any particular books that have had an impact on your life? Oh, what was the book I was thinking of?
0: Oh, I was uh, <laughs> one I was reading, rereading yesterday. Was it's funny? It's a business book. It's called From Good to Great by Jim Collins. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's like a a bestseller. Um, And I, well, I was rereading it because, you know, I'm thinking about going to my new job as a professor and one of the things at a research university is I'll be eventually heading up a a lab, so a, a research group. And so trying to think about how to be a good manager, how to be someone who shows humility, like, you know, as a follower of Christ, but at the same time helps the students succeed at what they do and push them to excellence. And so, this book, Good to Great, um, Jim Collins is a research lab. Actually, I found out last night that he was in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I lived for five years. I had no idea. Um, he has a research um, lab there, and so they looked at a bunch of businesses, and they looked for businesses that, for fifteen years, were doing eh, so-so or slightly lower than average in their in their industry, and then had a period where, like a trans- what they call a transition period, so it was a point at which things were going, and then something changed and then for the next 15 years they did better than average so they were good companies but then they became great companies and what what did they have in common and so the first thing the first chapter he talks about and he says this was the thing that seemed absolutely essential there were several things but this one was just he put this first is what he called a level five leader and he says it was, a, it was people in ceos who had an interesting combination of humility and like drivenness, and so it was exactly. So I remembered reading about that several years ago. And I was like, I went back and read that chapter, um, which is fascinating to me um, that that was true. So these were the all these great companies that did really well over a long period of time had leaders who were uh, one of the things they said they put all the all the responsibility for the good on other people and all the blame on themselves, and they were usually kind of retiring maybe shy people that didn't take a lot of credit and you know not like unlike like steve jobs for example i mean this was written before but he he's a famous ceo they most of them and there's other famous ceos probably especially in the business world that he mentioned that I'd, i'd heard maybe one um maybe uh but other people know them as famous and like he said none of these you would they're not famous you wouldn't hear from hear about them because they were so humble so, But then he said, we don't know how they get to that point. We just observed that that was what they were. So I still don't know how to be that kind of leader. But it was encouraging to remember that that's a successful, a way to be successful.
1: So that kind of leader would take a business from good to great? Is that kind of the idea?
0: Yeah, I said that was that was a thing. It was during that, that period when they, a transition period where they were, and he like showed a chart where they were the profits were doing okay and maybe they're going down a little bit and they would have a period where it kind of leveled out a little bit so that was a transition period and then went up and and during that transition period what had happened is they would take on a CEO who was that kind of leader
1: so humble but not like um, hands-off still really active yeah. and and involved and, and stuff.
0: able to get people to be really excellent um, like push them to do better than they thought they could do hmm. yeah
1: that's interesting yes yeah, I wonder, um, you know, what qualities helps a person do their best and st- stuff like that, you know? I don't...
0: Yeah, it, so apparently that's a question he's been asked. So, you know, I was that's the question I've been asking a little bit. Like, how do I become that kind of leader? And so I looked a little bit on the Internet. It was kind of late, so I just looked at one article. Uh, it was a transcript, I guess, from a speech he had done where they asked that question. And he, again, he said, we don't know. We didn't study that. We didn't ask that question. But one thing we found is that a lot of these leaders had gone through something in their life um, that had kind of shattered, like earth-shattering. And he mentioned one of them, uh, for example, was uh, a CEO had, who had converted to evangelical Christianity, had become a, a what he called a capital-C Christian. And so his experience was that made me think me and my interests were just so insignificant in the world that I, the CEO said this, that I spent the rest of my struggle, life struggling and thinking and wrestling with how do I incorporate my faith in my work um, and he said that becoming a, a capital C Christian is a real Christian not just a nominal one was such a humbling experience hmm. so that was that was one that I related to um, mm-hmm. I think another person who had, had a, been diagnosed with cancer and told he would die in a year so kind of hmm. changed his focus in life yeah. right. things like that hmm. alright yeah. well
1: Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Um, Thank you. You know, before we just wrap up, is there anything else that you want to um, uh, bring up? Or um, I don't know if you have anything you want people to follow. I don't know if you're a blogger or anything no. like that, but okay.
0: No. But, um, I have a website. And if you're, if you're interested in studying linguistics, then I'm a professor and I'm looking for students. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, anyway, I appreciate the conversation. Thank it's been too. good.
0: It's, it's been really good. I really appreciate it. Thanks hmm <laughs>